0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We mentioned on last week's program that there's a controversy about a, a Google word processing artificial intelligence program that may or may not be sentient. We're going to have more to say about that, we think, on next week's program. But we thought we might start out today by noting that, as far as we can self-assess, Radio Parallax is, in fact, self-aware and sentient. The fact is, Mr. Mullen and I need to contemplate what it is we do here on a regular basis. Because the deal is, nobody's telling us what to do. Which, frankly, is a wonderful thing. But in discussing, recently, the... Art of Radio Parallax with someone that had never heard of it, I said, well, we try and come up with good news, but sometimes that's really a problem. On the other hand, if we're talking about things that are of concern, it's probably good that we would try and get proper data out in front of you, dear listener, because if you don't really know what's going on, chances are the solutions that you're thinking of are probably not going to work. I guess this brings to mind Marcus Aurelius, naturally. Yeah, some, someone posted a meme from the Roman emperor, who was quite a writer, saying that uh, the opinion of 10,000 men is of no value if none of them know anything about the subject, which uh, we think is true. So, I guess I'm, I'm noting that if we stray into some bad news today, uh, which, which we're probably going to, that itself is a just cause Another meme I got sent recently was from a retweet, I guess it was, somehow made its way to me from a man named John Pavlovitz. Said Mr. Pavlovitz, dear good Americans, whatever you wish more good Germans were doing in Germany in 1933, you need to be doing that now. Which We're going to be talking about as we move through this. Yet another meme that, uh, that was sent to me. I think I paraphrased it on last week's program. But I want to get it exactly right. This is baby Molly. A small child is laying on a blanket. She was born from an embryo that had been frozen for 27 years. If we put baby Molly in a freezer for 27 years, baby Molly would die. Why can you freeze an embryo and not a baby? Because an embryo isn't a living human hard to argue with the biology. Mr. Millen asked, at what point can you not freeze an embryo? And I have to admit, I I don't know the answer to that, but we'll try and have that for next week's show. We've had some great, uh, great discussions in the last two programs. Two weeks ago with Jefferson Morley about his excellent book, Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate, and a talk about the January 6th hearings on last week's program with adjunct professor of law at Northwestern, Stephen J. Harper. In today's show, we're going to be guest-free because we've got a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff we'd like to touch upon. Starting with one item that I, that I got my hands on last month but have failed to put on the show until now. If you're worried about politics in America, and, and we think you should be, we unfortunately have some, I guess you'd say, even worse news. Writing in Vox last month, Ian Milheiser said a federal appeals court just handed down an astonishing decision that could dismantle much of the system the federal government uses to enforce long-standing laws. The ruling came, and what I guess would be the last week in May, from a panel of the notoriously conservative 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which sided with a hedge fund manager who was fined nearly $1 million by the Securities Exchange Commission for defrauding clients. The manager, George Jarkesi, argued that the SEC's actions unconstitutionally deprived him of his right to a jury trial. And two of the three judges on the panel agreed with him. Right off the bat, you have to like the way this is starting. He didn't argue, I'm innocent. He argued, hey, hey, I need a jury trial. Let's face it, ladies and gentlemen, when you're guilty, you want a jury. Because you have to introduce doubt in the mind of one juror in a criminal case that there's reasonable doubt. Anyway, Both of these Republican appointed judges are known for interpreting the law in creative and unexpected ways, said Vox, and that's of course to achieve desired conservative ends. This ruling could nullify the power of 2,000 administrative law judges who work in about 30 federal agencies enforcing environmental and financial regulations and ruling on eligibility for benefits, said Vox It's the judicial equivalent of tossing a Molotov cocktail into the federal government. In CNN, Thierry Sneed noted an appeal could reach the Supreme Court, where the new conservative majority appears especially receptive to, quote, reigning in the powers of the administrative state, unquote. The result could be a broad ruling stripping administrative powers from agencies across the federal government. Mark Gongloff in Bloomberg said that's something conservatives have dreamed of for decades. Ever since the New Deal expanded the power of federal agencies to protect the public from tainted water, dangerous workplaces, and discrimination, businesses and Republicans have sought to undo those regulations. Now the tide is turning and Americans may soon find out many of the protections they take for granted are suddenly in doubt. A lot of people after surveying the wreckage of this uh, this year's Supreme Court session say, oh, wait till next year. And there's a prelude to that right there. I do want to note, by way of forward promoting, that we expect Michael Trackman, lawyer and excellent writer and commentator, to return to this program later in the month to give his opinion on Roe v. Wade and to take a look back at Citizens United. I was unaware of the fact that he had already commented publicly on Citizens United because I did not have the edition of his books that, that talked about that, but I remedied that in the meantime, and it's probably worth quoting from a little bit right now. In Michael Trackman's The Supreme's Greatest Hits, second revised and updated edition, he had this to say about Citizens United. Increasingly, Americans have come to believe that elections can be bought, not, as in prior eras, by stuffing the ballot box, but through the purchase of media time in such quantities as will steamroller an opponent of lesser means. This concern, the concern for what has become known as campaign finance reform, runs headlong into a bedrock constitutional issue. Can the government lawfully restrict the free speech rights of organizations to spend what they want to garner support for their preferred candidate? Said Trackman, Citizens United conjures the continuing deep divide respecting campaign finance reform. But at the same time, it is much more than that. Citizens United has become a lightning rod for a cynical suspicion about the Supreme Court itself. Does the court decide cases based on a dispassionate view of constitutional principles? Or does it set out to serve a political bias or agenda? The suspicion, whether justified or not, did not arise in a vacuum. We would note that Mr. Trackman bends over backwards to not insert his personal opinions in some of his writing. I know from recent conversations that his suspicion that the Supreme Court is out to serve political biases or agendas is now something he has reluctantly accepted as just a horrible fact of American life. Anyway, he talked about the McCain-Feingold Act, officially known as the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, BCRA, back in 2002, that set out restrictions on campaign finances. At the time, it was considered a start, certainly not the ultimate answer to the problem of money and politics. Noted Trackman, there was no consensus on how to limit the influence of big money. But at that time, the Citizens United was decided there was a vibrant and ongoing debate that took as an article of faith the fact that somehow it had to be done. It's curious, too, although it's not discussed much in the book, that in 2003, the McCain-Feingold Act was challenged by none other than Mitch McConnell, who opposed its passage in the Senate. He sued and got the case in front of the Supreme Court in McConnell versus Federal Election Commission. The court, by a 5-4 to four vote, decided that McCain-Feingold was legitimate and could constitutionally restrict campaign finances. But at that time, two of the yes votes, Justices O'Connor and Souter, had retired, leading us to 2010 and Citizens United. O'Connor and Souter had been replaced by two very likely no votes, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. Anthony Kennedy, Antonin Scalia, and Clarence Thomas had already shown their cards. They had dissented in McConnell. And to make a long story short and even shorter, because we don't have too much time to go over this today and we'll be revisiting it again, Justice Anthony Kennedy from McGeorge School of Law disagreed with the primary rationale for limiting corporate expenditures, which is that money buys access and promotes corruption. He opined that only evidence of a quid pro quo corruption, a direct payment for a specific act in return, could justify curbing corporate expenditures. And for that reason, large direct contributions to candidates could be prohibited as being justifiably suspicious. But he concluded there was no evidence that indirect support of a candidate, like distributing a movie excoriating a candidate's opponent, would lead to corruption. Anyway, I'll note in closing here that uh, in this chapter, Drachman notes that Citizens United has spawned a storm of rancorous criticism. Most people, according to surveys, believe the decision fosters a system in which elected officials, even if not quid pro quo corrupt, are highly influenced by corporations that provide the money it takes to get elected and stay elected in a political system dominated by expensive television commercials and political consultants. I think we would have to agree on Michael Trackman on that last part and look forward to discussing it with him in greater detail. Another discussion of our political mess with uh, our past and future guest, Howard McKinney, we talked about uh, the Electoral College and how it is that, well, there's a huge bias in the Electoral College, obviously in favor of the smaller states. The House of Representatives is based on population within reason, but the U.S. Senate gives two senators to every state, no matter how small. I got to wondering, how much more power do people in small states have versus, say, a voter here in California? There's lots of ways you can, you can determine this, but one way I decided to look at it was how many electoral votes does the state get relative to its population? Take California and call that one. In California's case, it takes 679,000 Californians to contribute to one electoral vote. Then I took a look at the 12 least populous red states to note that they, between them, have 53 electoral votes California had 55 last, uh, last election. It will be demoted by one in the 2024 contest. If you calculate the total for these 12 states and average out how many votes per person they get versus California, it averages out to 1.82. A Wyoming voter, for example, equals 3.6 Californians in being able to cast electoral votes. A citizen in North Dakota has a three-to-one advantage. In the four most populous red states of this dozen, the factor works out to about 1.4. A person voting in Utah, Kansas, Arkansas, Mississippi has 1.4 times the power of a voter in California. So obviously, we're a good long way away from one man, one vote. Also, one person, one vote. And if I may insert one little politically correct dig at this juncture, I would note that I heard recently someone talking in the wake of the Roe v. Wade overturning that this was going to create a problem for pregnant persons. Yes, pregnant persons. Don't you think you'd be on pretty solid ground if you referred to a pregnant person as a woman? We think so. I don't know. I feel wound challenged. Well, we'll see if we can get some therapy for that. But back to politics. Thanks to the 2020 census and the rampant gerrymandering that followed in its wake, it seems likely that the Republicans, even with no change in vote, would stand to pick up numerous seats in the House. That is, of course, assuming that the populace does not rise up in the wake of the January 6th hearings, which are going to continue, apparently with more bombshells in the works, and also the fact that you would think that many women in this country, particularly college-educated women, are going to take a look at Roe v. Wade's overturning and just say this, this, this was something that should not have happened. We've got to stop electing Republicans. You know, I've been talking to people that are Republicans of late. I registered Republican back circa 2000, well, for the main reason that I could vote for John McCain over George W. Bush in the GOP primary in California. But We've got lots of family members and some friends that were Republicans, but I just have to say what used to be the Republican Party is no longer the Republican Party. I'm not sure Barry Goldwater, if he, if he joined the Republican Party today, wouldn't be called a rhino. But as we have talked about in the past and we'll talk about in the future on this program, what's in the works right now is um, an attempt to revise the U.S. government. The Economist notes that one little prelude to what we may see in the future took place in New Mexico last week. To quote from the magazine, Otero County in New Mexico is home to fewer than 70,000 people. Yet, the rural municipality found unfortunate fame recently when local officials refused to certify the results of their primary elections back on June 7th. New Mexico's Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver swiftly asked the state Supreme Court to compel the county commissioners to certify the results. They eventually voted two to one to do so. Cui Griffin, the lone dissenter, the founder of Cowboys for Trump, voted to disenfranchise his constituents and got sentenced to two weeks in jail for taking part in the Capitol riot on January 6th. Though to the magazine, this was not a contentious election. The county clerk insisted there was no evidence of fraud and no candidate questioned the results. Mr. Griffin himself admitted his intransigence was not based on any facts Echoing a favorite conspiracy theory of Donald Trump, the commissioner said he just had a gut feeling that something was amiss. Later in the piece, the economist notes at least 23 Republican candidates for secretary of state in this year's midterms have questioned the results of the 2020 election. That's according to States Unified. That's according to States United Action, a watchdog group. The latest test of Republicans' embrace of these candidates was Colorado's primary on June 28th. Tina Peters, a clerk who was recently indicted for breaching her county's election system in an effort to prove the voting machines were really against Mr. Trump, lost to a moderate with no such delusions. It's coming, folks. We're going to see what happens this November as elections get challenged. They will be challenged regardless of whether they were done perfectly. They will be challenged if the Trumpian candidate does not win. And in keeping with the dictum quoted on this program, the Democrats never seem to miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, we have this. Jonathan Weissman, writing in the New York Times, notes that some local and state Democrats are pursuing an enormously risky strategy. They are quietly encouraging Republicans to nominate far-right Trumpist candidates in primaries in the hope that their extremism leads to easy Democratic victories in November. This unusual tactic has been used in the House, Senate, and gubernatorial elections in at least five states. just have to pause right there and say, how smart does this sound to you, my dear listener? In Colorado, a shadowy new group has spent $1.5 million on ads calling senatorial candidate Ron Hanks, a big lie supporter who participated in the January 6 protests, too conservative. To the Republican base, of course, that sounds like enough of a compliment to make them choose him, not the moderate Joe O'Day to run against incumbent Senator Michael Bennett. Said Ed Kilgore in New York Magazine, Democrats are pulling similar stunts in California. This controversial tactic presumes that a majority of general election voters be turned off by GOP kooks. But, of course, as Trump's 2016 upset victory demonstrated, that calculation can prove wrong. I'd like to note that I just finished Peril by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa. I confess to not being a huge Bob Woodward fan, but he does get quotes, and he does get people to talk to him, and he does dig out interesting information, even if he somehow seems to not get it 100% right, in our opinion. But I did want to quote from his last chapter. In fact, this is the last page of the epilogue. Woodward described meeting Trump, back in 2015 at the Trump International Hotel, which was still unfinished. He said, that day we recognized he was an extraordinary political force in many ways right out of the American playbook, an outsider, anti-establishment, a businessman, a builder, bombastic, confident, a fast-talking scrapper. Personally, I think he's being awfully kind to Donald J. Trump. But Said Woodward, we also saw darkness. He could be petty, cruel, bored by American history, and dismissive of governing traditions that had long guided elected leaders. tantalized by the prospect of power, eager to use fear to get his way. He said Trump told us real power is, I don't even want to use the word, fear. I bring rage out. I do bring rage out. I always have. I don't know if it's an asset or a liability, but whatever it is, I do. Woodward closes with, could Trump work his will again? Were there any limits to what he and his supporters might do to put him back in power? Peril remains. We don't often have a lot of nice things to say about Donald Trump on this program, but we do want to note that back in 2016, when he surged to the front of the Republican candidate list, we thought that he probably offered one advantage over Hillary Clinton. He, Donald Trump, was probably not going to want to take responsibility for starting a war anywhere. We didn't think Hillary Clinton would feel so constrained about it. One of the last chapters here, Bob Woodward talks about Joe Biden and how Joe Biden was determined last year to close out the American involvement in Afghanistan. I was not aware of this fact, but when Obama first decided early into his first term that he was going to ramp up the war in Afghanistan, Joe Biden was steadfastly opposed. Joint Chiefs of Staff Milley was aware of what was going on back in 2009. Talking to his people, he was trying to explain Biden's mindset on Afghanistan and said, in the first year of Obama, well, that's when the military and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton strong-armed Obama into sending 30,000 more U.S. troops to the Afghanistan war. To quote from General Milley, I was a colonel at that time. General Mullen was the chairman, and I was in the basement. I was a witness to some of this. Admiral Mullen General McChrystal, General Petraeus, the uniform guys, had tried to box in a new president, a new young president from Chicago that, well, maybe I can't read minds, but they thought could they could take advantage of and box him in on the surge in Afghanistan. Joe Biden pointed out correctly at that time that there'd been mission creep in Afghanistan. We went in to get rid of the Taliban, which had given safe harbor to al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. But then there was this idea we needed to get involved in nation building in Afghanistan. We certainly questioned this, this whole issue on this program on many occasions over the years, and are a little bit surprised to learn that we were completely in sync with future President Joe Biden. And here is the exact stats I made mention of on last week's program. 58% of Americans think former President Donald Trump should be charged with a crime for his role in the January 6th Capitol riot. Well, we would call it the Capitol pooch. A pooch, by the way is a secretly planned and suddenly executed plan to overthrow a government. That's the best word we've heard for what happened on January 6th. We hope people will start using it. At any rate, this represents a 6% increase since the House hearings began. And this is data that's a week old and before the blockbuster dropped by Cassidy Hutchinson last week. There seems to be evidence that uh, a lot of people have come forward in the wake of her testimony, and there's going to be more in, of a similar vein we're looking forward to it. But back to the polling, 91% of Democrats favor charging Trump, 19% of Republicans, and 62% of independents now think Trump should be charged with a crime. The, the numbers may have moved a little bit since that report came out, we hope so, and we, we hope when this show is over, and the televised hearings, that Merrick Garland will then step in and start indicting. In Bob Woodward's book, he seems to uh, let the authorities off the hook in saying that, well, the intelligence wasn't that good. It seemed kind of like it was a little unorganized. We really didn't know what was going to go down on January 6th, to which I say, I doubt it. What the hell does the NSA and CIA do but listen in on all of our conversations and monitor them? It is interesting, of course, that one of the insurrectionists who was advocating the overthrow of the U.S. government on January 6th was the wife of a Supreme Court justice. We do hope that Jenny Thomas will be put under oath and put in front of the cameras. Probably not going to happen, but we can hope, can't we? And frankly, for comedy relief, what could be Rudy Giuliani appearing before the cameras? As you may or may not have heard, a grocery store worker in Staten Island was charged this week with slapping former Mayor Giuliani in the back. Here's something we did not know. Giuliani apparently was there to campaign for his son Andrew's gubernatorial bid in New York. He said he felt tremendous pain, as if somebody had shot me adding that if he weren't in pretty good shape, he would have hit the ground and probably cracked my skull. It should be noted that Giuliani's account does not appear to match the images that were recorded on the store's surveillance footage, which showed the portly 78-year-old looking startled, but not moving or reacting in pain after Daniel Gill, age 39, slapped him on the back while walking by. Gill reportedly called Giuliani a scumbag for opposing abortion rights. The charges against Gill were reduced after the video surfaced. And you know, there is some evidence that the Department of Justice is going to do something about what happened on January 6th. John Eastman, the lawyer who was the mastermind of Trump's strategy to overturn the election results, which was documented pretty well in in Woodward's book, Peril, got confronted by agents with a search warrant last week as he left a restaurant near his Santa Fe, New Mexico home. They frisked him They forced him to provide biometric data to unlock his phone, and they sent it to a forensic lab. The same day, federal agents raided the North Virginia home of Jeffrey Clark and seized electronic devices from the former DOJ official who pushed the Justice Department to make claims of election fraud. We'd also note that right after the January 6th siege, John Eastman emailed Rudy Giuliani to say, I've decided I should be on the pardon list if, if that's still in the works. And on that note, I think we should take a a short break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Severett. We got a lot more to talk about, so stick around, eh?